This is Effed Up, a conversational podcast about injustice, true crime, and rosé. Season one of Effed Up is a story about the corruption in one state's crime lab. Listeners are advised that this podcast contains opinions that are our own. La, la, la. Let's get started. <laughs> Everybody sounds beautiful. Everybody sounds spectacular. Okay, so I'm just recording. Right, but you're just recording. Oh, I'm first. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> it's in the script. <laughs> I'm Jessica Borges. I'm Priya Hubbard. I'm Keith Burke. Okay, so we're going to have a quick little business meeting here. In some of the documents we're going to be linking to on our Facebook page, they have some personal information for the people we're talking about on Fucked Up. While the documents we will be posting of our research are public documents that we found on the internet, so you probably could too, we do understand probably more than you know after having lived with these stories for the past few years how angry many of our listeners are going to be. We are too. We also understand the inclination to find personal information such as an address or a phone number in these documents. And we hope that this would normally go without saying, but as a just in case we're going to say it, please don't contact these people. Please don't do anything close to doxing. These are real people. They have real families and we're not out for any sort of vigilante shenanigans. If you're upset, and we definitely are by these stories, we ask that you take the time to write your representatives in the government. We ask that you go out and vote because a lot of these labs are under government and or law enforcement jurisdiction. In other news that we need to do, we want to start this episode with a content warning. This episode in part covers a case that involves discussion of sexual abuse and child abuse. And before we start, we want to provide avenues of support if needed or wanted. Online, you can find the RAIN website at www.rainn.org. They have a chat feature on their landing page, but if you'd prefer to speak with someone, their hotline is 1-800-656-HOPE or 1-800-656-4673. All right, and with that, let's get started. All right, so we're going to do a little bit of a recap. So Greg Taylor was exonerated in February 2010 in large part due to the fact that SBI bloodstain pattern analyst Dwayne Deaver had failed to include a confirmatory test that proved a substance on Greg's truck was not blood. The attorney general at the time, Roy Cooper, called for an audit of the lab. In the meantime, the News and Observer released a number of articles, including a compelling series called Agent Secrets. We explored some of the practices within the lab, including a direct link between lab employees and law enforcement and prosecutors, as we discussed what happened when law enforcement locked in on Leslie Lincoln as the prime suspect in the brutal killing of her mother back in 2002. In 2005, three defense attorneys, including Leslie's lawyer, Buddy Connor, and a woman named Diane Savage, lodged complaints with the SBI Labs Accrediting Agency, Asgard Lab, about the North Carolina SBI Crime Lab. In 2007, Kirk Turner was charged with first-degree murder of his estranged wife, and SBI analyst Gerald Thomas shored up evidence to prove his theories as well as amended reports. Gerald Thomas had been trained by problematic folks, including Dwayne Deaver, Jennifer Elwell, Dennis Honeycutt, as well as others. On August 18th, 2010, after a five-month review, the independent audit was completed and the report was released. It was revealed that there were 230 cases of potential wrongdoing inside the fucking lab. So now we're all caught up and here we go with part one of the audit is fucked up. 
Okay, so let's jump into the audit. In March of 2010, North Carolina Attorney General Roy Cooper commissioned former FBI officials, as you may remember, to conduct a comprehensive audit of the SBI bloodstain analysis unit and their cases. These two officials were former assistant director of the FBI Criminal Investigative Division, Chris Swecker, and former assistant director of the FBI Crisis Response Division, Michael Wolf. They were told that the audit would have strict parameters by Cooper and the SBI. They were to only look at cases between the years 1987 and 2003, because in 2003, the SBI crime lab replaced other kinds of confirmatory testing previously done in the lab. Oh, so it only took them 15 years to realize they were doing a bunch of bullshit? I don't think they, even, <laughs> they didn't realize it in 2003, that they were doing a bunch of bullshit. It That's was just, just when that, they got in trouble. <clears throat> no, it's when DNA came in. Uh, yeah, because Greg Taylor's exoneration oh, was 2010. rescinded. Yeah, yeah. So now into the numbers. First, they took cases that were randomly chosen from between 1989 and 1991. In the samplings of these cases, they found... Right. Did you just do a head tilt? Yeah. Same. Yeah. yeah. I was like, why? Why those three years? Why? Well, let's hold on. I think we may have an answer. I'm intrigued. In the samplings of these cases, they found cases that were, quote, consistent with the scenario presented in Greg's case. Okay. So that was just a two-year period that they looked at around the time of Greg's case, ostensibly just to kind of see how bad it was. And it turns out it was really bad. And they found 30 fucking cases. 30? Yeah. That was just like a sample. So they In were- two years? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, at least they're consistent. Yeah. <laughs> Way so- terrible. <laughs> yeah. So then with the help of senior staff from the AG's office, they reviewed all of the 15,419 files that were from the years 1987 to 2003. They were looking at every report for all serology cases that had similar language to Greg's case, including the 30 that they'd found just by doing the samplings. The language that they looked for was, quote, indications of blood or, quote, chemical indications for the presence of blood, which is supposed to indicate that at least one presumptive test for blood was conducted with positive results. And a total of 932 files were identified as having this language used. Okay. We're just breaking down all of the files that they went through. So it started out with over right. 15,000. Now they're down to 932. That, that, that are worth investigating because right, of this Right, because they have that specific mm-hmm. right. language. Yeah. yeah. So each of these 932 files were then fully reviewed. And 230 of these files contained at least one instance of, quote, where the lab notes reflected that a positive presumptive test for the presence of blood was followed by a confirmatory test that yielded results that were, quote, negative inconclusive or no result. But this information was not included in the final reports. So that seems like a problem. So yeah, so basically the only record of these negative or inconclusive tests were contained in the analyst handwritten lab notes. I think the thing that really like kind of annoys me the most and is sort of like the most shocking part, like, yeah, there's like the things are not being done correctly, but this is all knowingly done. This is like, it's like if I'm the analyst, I wrote stuff down in my little notepad and then was like, ooh, well, that's probably not going to be what they want. So I'm just not going to put that in. Right. Like that seems a little. Like a keep lot. that in the pocket right. and give the, them the first test. The, that sort of seemed to be the, you know, standard operating procedure. Yeah. But it wasn't even like their. It wasn't an. The right. Individual. That's what I mean. It seems to be like a company wide thing. It's not like there's this one schmuck that's like, oh, it's Joe. He sucks at his job. Right. And keeps leaving stuff out. It's like Joe, Joe and Joe's friends and Joe's... Or Dwayne. Or Dwayne. Well, I wasn't going to get to him. I was leaving... Like, he's the one I remember, but... But he's, he's not the only. Everybody. He's not the only one that's doing this stuff. Exactly. It's more which pervasive. Is, 
that is the entire point of this podcast is, or like the kernel of our idea was Greg Taylor and also Dwayne Deaver. Right. And the fact that everybody was so focused on Dwayne Deaver doing all of this shit. It's not just like a bad apple, like the apple tree is kind of bad. Right. So in these 230 cases, the SBI lab had tested blood from crime scenes. But in 40 of those cases, law enforcement weren't actually able to identify the suspect, or in some cases, suspects were charged. So thankfully, these 40 cases didn't result in wrongful accusations or convictions. Thank God. Yay. Interestingly, though, a footnote footnote on this section of the audit indicates that an additional 20 cases resulted in dismissals or not guilty verdicts. So, I mean, if you get 20 out of 230 cases resulting in true justice, I guess like a 9% rate is a good thing to strive for, right? Right? Okay. So, like 20 of the cases were dismissals. And not guilty. Verdicts. Oh, after the audit. That's what they found as a result of the audit. Like when they were checking everything, they found that 20 of them out of the 230 were like, fine. They were okay. Okay. But that's only a 9% right. rate of like justice. Yeah, I think you were tricking me with math. I was like, that seems bad. It's fucked up. It's, it's bad. what it is. It's fucked up. 9% is fucked up. Yeah, it's not a great percentage. We'd hope that for the a justice. Crime lab right. Lab, yeah. Somebody who specializes in doing this for a living. The next phase concentrated on confusing language used by the lab. They found that there were 105 people who had similar cases to Greg, where it's super confusing and it seems like there was blood found or identified. And in these 105 cases, there were 43 that involved one or more defendants. There were nine cases which resulted in dismissals or not guilty verdicts. In the remaining cases, the defendants served their sentences or had been released. Okay. The next phase was misleading reports. Oh, that's a whole phase? Yeah, there's oh. four of them. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. There were 36 cases that contained misleading reports that stated that no further tests were conducted when, in fact, one or more confirmatory tests were conducted with negative or inconclusive results. So that kind of goes back to what we were saying before, right. where it's like, I'm going to just give you the first one and the yeah. rest I'm going to keep in like my Right, where it's like, well, I'm going to get this result. Oops, that doesn't go to that result. Bye. No one needs to see this. Yeah, so... Three of these cases had defendants who were still in prison at that time. Right. Well, because that's more upsetting because it's not, oh, I made a mistake. It's like I intentionally came to a certain result and was like, nope, that doesn't go with the conclusion that we are trying to get to. So, I'm going to pretend like that that never happened. That's more fucked up. Totally. And this is where I get really irritated by the idea of, yeah, I'm just following orders because you are a human being who is seeing that you have a positive result here, you do the confirmatory test, and you have a negative result with a confirmatory test, and you opt to not share that, even though it's policy, go against policy. Right, you're you're trying to blame the fact that you're a garbage person on protocol. Right. Which is, (laughs) makes you a garbage person. Yes. Mm-hmm. And not not a, a garbage person, garbage person who are just like they, they the description of a person that is garbage. Oh yeah. my god, I used to love my garbage man. Like when I was a kid, yeah, garbage men are awesome. They like they clean up everything. I'm talking you about like garbage, a dumpster fire, garbage humans. Yes. Yeah. In the fourth and final phase, they looked at misrepresented final reports. This phase, which the report states is the most serious one, which not like the other ones aren't fucking serious. Also, well, that makes sense because it's what goes to trial. Right, that's what's actually seen. Right. But they're all pretty they're all damn fucked important. Up. Yeah. 
So this involves cases in which the reported actual results of the confirmatory tests were overreported or not reflective of the results contained in the lab notes. So basically, they were presented in an enhanced or exaggerated manner, which doesn't seem very sciencey to me. And according to the audit, quote, there were five such cases in this category, all handled by Dwayne Deaver. I'm sensing a pattern here. <laughs> in two instances, the words, quote, revealed the presence of blood were used when, in fact, the results of the confirmatory test were reflected in the notes as negative. And in three other instances, the report stated that further tests were inconclusive or failed to give any results when the lab notes reflected negative results. So what you're saying is he's a liar. That bird is a liar. Allegedly. Allegedly. Or, uh, no, in this case, not allegedly. According like, to the audit. According to the audit, yeah, actually. We have facts. Yeah. So the report cautions that each case did not necessarily result in wrongful conviction, but indicates that there are a number of cases that warrant a reinvestigation. Yeah. A number of cases where a defendant may have pled guilty or been coerced to confess or not testify, or there may have been some cases where there was some other strategic defense action that was taken based on a questionable lab report. Basically, the recommendation was that if anybody wanted to look into these cases, it was up to the defendant or their attorney or whatever, or the prosecution to determine whether or not the case was worth reopening. So it's like, we've done this investigating. This is what we've come up with. We're going to disseminate it, and you can decide if you want to reopen it or not. We're not. We're just saying this is what we found. So you can take it from here. Okay. And so basically the bottom line is that there wasn't an automatic exoneration of any of these people. It was just like, a, hey, this is what we found. So attorney- <laughs> all, all that evidence we found, oops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not really evidence. Yeah. So attorney general Roy Cooper got this report of the audit, perused it, and then did what he needed to do, basically delivered copies of the report and the list of names to the district attorneys across the state a little more than an hour before announcing it to the public. Right. So this- Fucked up shit is happening. This audit is being released and we're going to sort of narrow in on what we're looking at here. We're going to get into one of the names on the list. Okay. A young man named Derek Allen. And in 1998, he was living with his girlfriend and her two-year-old daughter. And on February 9th, 1998, Derek's girlfriend headed to work and Derek stayed home with the baby and a woman named Kia Ward, who I guess was like staying there. I'm not really totally sure what she was about. I don't know what her friend. Yeah. I think she was just staying yeah. with them. Approximately half an hour after his girlfriend left, Derek called 911 because the baby had passed out. Oy. EMTs Oy. arrived and the baby had no pulse. The poor little baby had died. Ugh. Yeah. Yikes. Okay. Yeah. I don't like this story. I don't either. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's really rosé. Yeah. challenging. We're going to get through this little pod, and the rest of it is a little bit easier because we get into the SBI and stuff, but we're just giving you a little background on what happened. Okay, so the EMTs found what seemed to be blood inside of the left leg of the baby's onesie. She complained about a pain in her leg and passed out after being taken out of the tub after a bath. An autopsy was done, and it revealed abrasions or lacerations to the little girl's vaginal orifice. Oy. Yep. So, shortly thereafter, Derek was arrested. For Him, the baby's murder? For the baby's... Death. Death. Okay. 
And in late winter of 1998, a Durham County grand jury indicted Derek with first-degree sex offense, felony child abuse, and first-degree murder. And we're going to circle back to this in a moment. As we mentioned, this is the really rough part of this episode, so we just need to like take a little break and parse it out a little bit. We're going to head over back to the audit and take a little fucked-up break from this story. When the audit was released, there was huge public outcry. And we're just going to go through some of the quoted responses from the people in North Carolina as reported by the local paper, the News and Observer. Okay. So you can kind of get an idea of where people's heads were at as this information became public. Staples Hughes, the state appellate defender whose office oversees appeals of all defendants convicted by juries, said, quote, this is such a damning indictment of the SBI. Why didn't they just say we lied? That's what they did. Sadly, I'm not surprised. Hmm. Wayne County District Attorney Branny Vickery said, quote, this is mind boggling. It is really a nightmare for everyone. I don't know how we're going to make this right. So basically, like, I'm going to give you a few more, but like the gist is people are fucking pissed, like and shocked. Mm, some people so. are shocked, some people aren't, but it's just like. Yeah, there's a few that seem like, yep, that seems about right. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of sad. Well, I mean, it makes sense when you've seen some of their testimony. You're like, it's like Mr. Magoo-ish. All of these people are involved like politically or like in the justice system to some degree but you have to imagine there's just regular people that are just like drinking their morning coffee reading the newspaper going what the fuck like if i if that were me i would think yeah i would be worried because i'd be like you expect kind of like what greg taylor told us in the beginning of all this which is like you just have faith that the justice system will take care of Mm -hmm. you and I mean, if you didn't do something, you you would just like hope that the justice system would be on your side to help prove that you are innocent. But it's not that's not always the case, which is obviously coming to light here. It's also like the the different sort of responses are some are from prosecutors who are like, we've been working with these people. <laughs> right. Some are from defense attorneys who are like, these people are fucked up and have been fucked up. Right. And we've been like trying to raise alarm bells with you guys and well, nobody's fucking listening. Yeah. Well, it's also like trying to like do your job while you're, you know, with one arm tied behind your back. Like you don't have all the information you're, you have things that are knowingly being withheld from you, which makes it impossible to put up a good defense. Yeah. It's not a fair fight. No. Another quote. John Snyder, district attorney of Union County said, Ugh, quote, John Snyder, <laughs> that guy. <laughs> Well, but but listen. Oh, this is a good one. Oh, oops. Sorry, John. <laughs> he says, we've been out here asserting things as fact that just weren't. Now when I've got jurors coming in, I've got to enter in a whole line of questioning that I never should have been forced to do. They just won't trust us. So yeah, basically saying like, fair. now our jobs are a little bit harder yeah. because the word is out. The cat's out of the bag. Yeah, basically. because of these couple of garbage people. Mm-hmm. And the News and Observer wrote, Quote Snyder, John Snyder, who we just talked about, a Republican called for an independent audit of the entire crime lab because the audit itself that we have been talking about was only of the serology. Oh, right. So So he's saying like like, we should look at the whole shebang, which we we said that too. Yeah, Yeah, that that makes sense because if you're lying about one thing, you'd lie about other stuff too. Why limit the scope of it? Why are we? I mean, it needs to be investigated, but why not look at the whole thing? Okay, moving on. Roy Cooper is quoted in the News and Observer as saying, the lab cannot accept attitudes that are not open to the possibility that a mistake has been made. It cannot ignore criticism and suggestions from the outside. Except that's basically what the lab employees did as soon as this report was released. 
Right. It ignored criticism and suggestions from the outside. Mm-hmm. So uh, I can't say that I'm super surprised by that. Uh-uh. It seems powerful, the course. Yeah. Consistent. <laughs> In the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> In a terrible, terrible way. Terrible way. And quick little aside, Dwayne Deaver was not the only bloodstain pattern analyst who analyzed the spot found on Greg Taylor's truck, as we discussed in the first couple episodes. There is a man named Jed Taub, who was Deaver's superior, the assistant supervisor in the lab when Deaver was hired, and he assisted with the analysis. That's sort of the thing with this, well, whole thing. It's Dwayne Deaver's name out there. He was in the staircase. He's mentioned a ton in the audit. He had that horrific video of this really strange science in that video in the staircase as well. But no one really talks about the woman jumping up and down in some weird kind of dance in the video that's shown in the staircase for the Michael Peterson case. Yeah, like that girl with like the sick 90s hair. Yes. Well, her name is Susie Barker. And she had seven cases mentioned in the audit. So, oh, so she's kind like, of up there. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's not just Deaver. Yeah. He's not alone. Dwayne, Dwayne's still uh, in the lead, but yeah, we got second it. garbage person. <laughs> well. Allegedly. Hold on to your hat. <laughs> Anyways, remember Jed Taub? Yes. He retired in 2004 after 30 years of being with the SBI. And in 2010, when all this was happening, he was working with the Pitt County Sheriff's Office as a forensic investigator. According to the News and Observer, Taub said, we didn't report the negative result of a confirmatory test because really it's misleading. We couldn't be sure if it was blood, so those tests don't really matter. There's a lot of people making much ado about nothing. That seems like a flaw in the logic. Apparently, the only times he reported the absence of blood was when he got a negative result on that first presumptive test. Any negative results to him after that were apparently irrelevant. And I was kind of like, what the That doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. I feel like there's... Like, I don't understand if science is actually being applied here. And if so, I don't understand it. It makes no sense. There's no logic. That doesn't seem like science to me. That seems like I have a result I need to get to. So anything that doesn't go into that result is irrelevant. Well, and also, why do you get to choose what you are reporting or not? If you're doing confirmatory tests. Well, but that was the policy. That's you playing God. You're supposed to be an objective observer and just like, I did a test. Here's the results. Interpret as you see fit. Yeah. But, and like you said that it was a policy that just, why was that even a policy? So well, it's what you said in one like, of the other episodes that they, they're working for the prosecution. So mm-hmm. they're trying to get to a certain result as opposed to being the objective the result lab is you take a test and whatever results come of it, you present those results as opposed to anything that skews from the result you need to get to is discarded. Right. It's useless. It's, so inexplicably, Taub said, quote, people are so spacey about blood. If there was a misunderstanding, that's the fault of the defense attorney. We can't forestall every idiot. That was a quote. But you're the idiot. So the, the thing that's most annoying, though, is that there's like this sort of like condescension. Yeah. Condescension, is that it? a word? Yeah. Condescending, like condescending air, like, oh, you stupid people. Let me tell you how to do it. Like, but you're the scumbags that are like doing this BS. I mean, I don't know about you, but I felt that way when we talked about, or when we talked to that guy who was a, the former SBI agent. He'd been there for about 30 yes. years, not yes. Judd Top. I got a real sense of, oh, little ladies, pat you on the head. Let me tell you. Let me science explain you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you stupid people. Science, science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, 
I'm half Indian, so obviously was born with half a biology degree. <laughs> Automatic. Automatic. Like, but even I, like, I'm a dum dum, and like, uh, this seems real screwed up. Yeah. Okay. This is a pretty dismissive response from a guy who had nine of his cases noted in the audit where he'd withheld important results. That's Jed. Back to Jed. Yeah. He had nine cases, but apparently he didn't think that those additional test results were important. And it's pretty unfortunate that he was in a position to make those decisions. Hmm. Tobbs suggested that to avoid, quote, misunderstandings about his analyses, attorneys should have simply called him into court to testify. So he's basically implying that his written That's reports- It's not the attorney's fault. Like, wait. <laughs> How do you victim no, it's blame not the att- Yeah, it's not the attorney's responsibility to go, did you cheat and lie, you piece of shit? No, are you a fucking liar? No? Oh, okay. So you're the exception. No! That, I am. Yeah. I am tipsy and I'm angry. <laughs> yeah, so he's basically implying that his written reports aren't to be taken at face value, which is makes zero sense. Why even bother doing them? Yeah. yeah. Jed Taub wasn't alone in this viewpoint. SBI special agent Jennifer Elwell, you may remember we've mentioned before, mm. a woman who helped train Gerald Thomas, remember okay. her? Who we've mentioned in previous episodes, had a similar reaction where she felt that, quote, the audit was just one person's opinion but not the opinion of the scientific community. Mm. <laughs> well, Jen, as it turns out, was actually mentioned a few times in the audit as well. And by a few times, I mean a lot. I, well, she had a lot of activity that was questionable. And speaking of that, we're going to go back to Priya and back to the Derek Allen case. Oh, back to the... Okay. Except for, thankfully, the really rough part of the Derek Allen case is over. Okay. This woman, Kai Ward, the one who'd been at the residence, I think it was, I, I don't oh, know if the, it was an apartment. the not roommate, friend, whoever, yeah, person? Okay. At Derek Allen's, yeah. like, and his girlfriend's house. So she submitted to a polygraph test, and defense counsel was not made aware of this. During the polygraph, Ward revealed that she had previously had sex with Derek and that she considered him an enemy. But well, inex- that might have been important information. <laughs> but inexplicably, everything Ward said about Derek in this polygraph was taken as gospel by the investigators. Except for the part where she thought he was an enemy, meaning that she may be saying shit about him that might not be true and helped us get to this fucked up story. So, it gets even more fucked up than that because... Oof. On April 2nd, 1998, the state decided it wanted to pursue the death penalty for Derek Whoa. Allen. I'm just making faces over here. Cause... Yeah. How are these people not getting in trouble? Like all these people that lie and leave stuff out it's and policy. fake shit. And no, but I mean, I get it. Yeah. But once all this stuff comes to light, like. Isn't there something ethically with like you can be disbarred for like withholding information or am I making that up? I feel like there's a thing where it's like there should be a punishment for you being a fucking liar. Like there's information that would potentially prove that person innocent. And you're like, oops, I left that out of the report. My bad. That's fucking lying. Right. You can like lawyer away and say like, oh, it's just we technically. Yeah, we forgot to audit or we didn't know you fucking lied. I'm going to come in and try to lighten things up, but I'm not going to because it's awesome. Because <laughs> yes, this is all terrible. This is a really rough episode. <laughs> yeah. It's rough. 
The release of the report was a total shit show, and prosecutors and defense attorneys desperately wanted to review every single one of their cases. In general, the prosecutors and defense attorneys were in shock because 230 cases is pretty shocking. Yeah. Yeah. And around 80 defendants were still in prison at the time, which is a lot. A lot of people. Yeah. Uh, Holy lawsuits. <laughs> so you can imagine that people are chomping at the bit to get to the bottom of these cases to figure out, like, do we have a fighting chance? What the right. fuck? Like, is one of our cases one of the ones that maybe we could reverse? So on and so forth. Can we rectify so we're not a garbage state? Right. Exactly. And the, the, the executive director for prisoner legal services said that this was a top priority to check out these 80 prisoners. The list of names was also provided to defense attorneys, and they were encouraged to go through the list and see if any of their clients were named. Okay, back to you, Priya. So we're going to get back to Derek Allen, who was facing the death penalty, which on a really fucked up good day is super fucking scary. And on a really fucked up bad day, you're super innocent. And the state is saying they want to put you down like a feral dog, but also don't put feral dogs down. Just as a thing or humans like just don't kill people Derek like most people just wants to stay alive and in 1999 he agrees to enter an Alford plea deal it's acknowledging that prosecutors had damning evidence that would likely result in a guilty verdict if the case went to trial but when you enter this plea you're not admitting actual guilt you're only acknowledging that they've built a strong enough case against you where a jury might find it credible. So it's okay. like if you feel like you don't have a fighting chance, even though you know in your heart you're not guilty, it's your way of saying like, I'll, I'll, I'll take this plea deal without saying I did it. Because I know that I, don't, I can't stack up against this evidence that they have, whether or okay. not it's real evidence or not. So even though he entered this Alfred plea deal, he was sentenced to 43 years in prison. Yeek. Which is better than dying. Better than being murdered by the state. Still not great. Yeah, it's still not great. In 2004, Derek just didn't want to be in prison for a crime he didn't commit anymore. Fair. So five fucking years later, in March 2009, he was allowed to withdraw his plea and get a new trial. A day after Greg Taylor was exonerated on February 18th, 2010, Derek was appointed a new lawyer named Lisa Williams. She reviewed his case files and found that certain things were missing, like pages from the investigating agent's report. This is a direct violation of North Carolina's open file law, which was enacted in 2004, and we're actually going to get into that in a later episode, and a federal law that came out of a case of Brady versus Maryland from 1963-ish. Lisa Williams wrote a letter requesting the entire file. It was through this discovery that Lisa Williams found out a bunch of shit. And again, we know the drill. Ultimately, it's post-2010. In fact, it was 2011. And everyone knew what had been going on in the lab. Even the judge in Derek Allen's case, a man named Orlando Orla- Orlando... His name's Orlando Orlando? No. <laughs> no. Oh. no. Sorry. I went. <laughs> like his parents did not like him. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> he was. This is the inner monologue is off. <laughs> 
So even the judge, a man named Orlando Hudson or Orlando, he was well versed in the goings on in the lab. Besides, Derek was on that list of 230 cases that was implicated in the audit. So I'm going to bring you back to the point of our podcast. We're going to bring in the SBI. Yes. Specifically, Special Agent Jennifer Elwell and her superior SBI agent, David Spittle. So the two of them analyzed a number of items from the scene for the presence of blood. But note, Elwell is the one who testified, so we're pretty much only going to refer to her here. Okay. In the audit, she's the only one mentioned as dealing with this case. It's only Jennifer Elwell. So at this point, we're in the sixth episode, and we know the fucked up drill, where the initial testing conducted on the stains found were positive. But then Elwell conducted a Takayama test, which I don't know if you remember, that's the confirmatory test that was used in Greg Taylor's case that Dwayne Deaver used in his case to confirm that it wasn't blood. It came back as it wasn't blood, and he didn't include it. Correct. Right. So the Takayama test here resulted in a negative. And Elwell notated the negative sign in her notes. Perfect. So it's negative. Right. All all going smoothly. Then where we get into the screwed up part. (laughs) However, according to Elwell, as she explained the science at Derek's appeal, you were looking specifically for a crystal kind of formation that would occur. If the crystals didn't appear, then you would say that the test was negative or inconclusive. A negative Takayama test result only means that the analyst was not able to see the crystal formation. And despite her notating the negative minus sign, so she's saying that she wasn't able to see a crystal formation as she was looking through the microscope. Anyway, so Jennifer Elwell did the Takayama test in Derek's case. She had this alleged blood on the slide and she added the Takayama reagent. And she put the slide under a microscope and waited for the crystals to form. So Elwell said crystals did not form. They tried to form, but nothing happened. And when I read that, I, I basically started what laughing. What tried to form? Like exactly. they were just lazy? <laughs> they were <laughs> tired. <laughs> they had a rough Friday night. They're like, girl, I just need a burrito. Like, don't I can't. Me. I don't have time to form. <laughs> Don't tell me to floor, mom. Oh, my God. (laughs) No, but uh, part of this is like, yeah, this is all like infuriating and frustrating. But like how when that's sort of presented in court is somebody not be like, uh, what? Well, hang on a second. We're joking around about them being fully formed. The reality is I talked to Marilyn and she has an education in this kind of thing. And she has 40 fucking actually she has 40 fucking years of forensic science in practice and in educating Hundreds of expert testimonies. She's kind of a beast in this field. And according to Marilyn, in order to have a conclusive result of the presence of blood, those crystals must be fully formed. If the crystals do not fully form, that is a negative result. If there is enough sample left, a second test must be done. Okay. If the crystals still do not form, that is a negative, as in still a negative. So, so Elwell, she said in her report that they were trying to form, so that's a positive. Well, basically saw it as a positive, yeah. So she was inferring based on their attempt. She was using that as like a gray area where she can be like, well, they were trying, and therefore I interpreted it as a positive. I personally was not in Jennifer Elwell's brain when she was deciding to do these things. I feel like this is one of another one of those reporting 
policy SBI things where she's like, all right, there's a negative result in the confirmatory test. There's a, there's a negative and we don't necessarily want it to be negative. And our policy says like policy was, we don't have to report it. Exactly. So when you have that policy and you have a person like Jennifer Elwell, who likes to talk about the fact that, you know, these policies that she's a garbage person. Yes. Oh, just you wait. Oh, jeez. Keith Murray. Oh, jeez. Oh, you guys are turning Minnesotan for me. Thanks. Don't you know? Thanks a lot. All right. So that's the whole Takayama test. Okay. I think that we've covered it very thoroughly and Marilyn's explanation of it and how Jennifer Elwell sucks. <laughs> yep. Allegedly. It. Moving on. No, I think that's pretty accurate. <laughs> So Judge Hudson dismissed Derek's case. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So his reasoning to dismiss was, due to the prosecutors withholding critical information and flagrantly violating Derek's constitutional rights, that was his reasoning. Right. Yeah. Because the prosecutors and the lab are a bunch of fucking liars. So- In layman's terms. Yeah. Right. And also, (laughs) as a new lawyer myself- Due to my extensive <laughs> research into this podcast and also watching Law and Order, <laughs> as in all of them. Don't, don't. <laughs> yes. I agree with his ruling. Judge Hudson said that the prosecutors had caused such irreparable prejudice that he basically had no choice but to dismiss the charges and Derek was a free man. And that's the end of the case. Is it the end of the case? <laughs> okay, totes kidding. It's North Carolina, circa 2010, 2011. So... You know how in Leslie Lincoln's case and Greg Taylor's case, like, no one wants to think of other suspects, even if someone's exonerated. So, like, the cops are like, nope, no, 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 we got our guy, we got our gal, whatever. Well, the DA, Tracy Klein, was bitching and moaning all over the media because she believed they had their guy. She called what Judge Hudson did with Derek's case, as in dismissing it because he was fucking innocent, She called it an extreme abuse of power and, according to the News and Observer, issued a series of derogatory comments against the Durham County's chief resident superior court judge about that case and several others. She was not happy that he tried to dismiss it. Or did dismiss it. Much like the rest of her team, she's also a garbage person. Allegedly. 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 (laughs) I don't know. Is it allegedly? I guess that's an opinion. Yeah, that's an opinion. She sucks. So in September 2012... The state court of appeals unanimously decided that there were no grounds for Hudson's dismissal. They thought Hudson, the judge, didn't have adequate evidence to dismiss the case. Oh, okay. Remember how I was just kidding? Yeah. Yeah. So his ruling was reversed and the case went back to Durham County Superior Court. Apparently there was substantial independent blood evidence which I don't totally understand because all I could really find was a reference to, I guess like it was a paper towel that was in the kitchen in Derek Allen's case Mm -hmm. and the poor baby. There was a paper towel in the kitchen that allegedly had blood on it. But the substance on the onesie that was tested was deemed not blood. So that's 2012. Derek found himself in limbo for the next four years. But not in prison not in prison but he still had to wonder whether or not he was going to be tried again right if he was going to be or charged again tried again if he was going to be going back to prison so he's wondering if he would be wrongfully accused again until late october 2016 when a durham ada 
His name was Luke Baum. So he filed the necessary records because the case was being dismissed. And the statement was, after a significant investigation by law enforcement and the district attorney's office, witnesses essential to the prosecution of this case either cannot be located or are uncooperative and refuse to assist in the prosecution. As a result, the state cannot meet the burden of proving every element of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt and therefore cannot proceed with the prosecution of this case. Okay, so they are not going to admit that Derek Allen is fucking innocent. Like, they're not going to do that. They can't even get it out. Their reasoning is that the key witnesses that they would need to call are nowhere to be found. It is an 18-year-old case. It's not really that old. The people who are involved in this case, they're still alive. If there are key witnesses to prove that the not presumed innocent man's guilt, they'd come out of the, the woodwork. Like, this little baby was fucking two years old. People right. are going to want justice for that baby. Yeah. For the mother. So, to me, and again, this is just my opinion, but it sounds a lot more like those who had a vendetta against him, like Kia Ward, who banged him and then hated him. Sounds like they're not interested in lying any longer. But that is just my interpretation. This is not fact. So in 2016, Derek was 38 years old. He had spent half of his life either in prison or wondering if he was going to go back to prison. And I think it's really important to note that the miscarriage of justice here is super multi-layered, like a lot of these cases. For one, Derek Allen, huge miscarriage of justice, but also for his girlfriend at the time, the baby's mother. Right. And the sweet little baby, you know, who who died, who didn't have a chance to like fucking grow up. And, and I, I can't really talk about that. I mean, two years old is so young. Yeah. It's like devastating. And because of this withheld evidence and there wasn't blood on the baby's clothes, but they decided it was fucking murder. And even worse, they locked in on Derek Allen, decided he did some really terrible shit to this poor little girl and ran with it. And we don't even know if that actually fucking happened. So that means if someone else did it, they're walking around free as shit. And the baby's mother, friends, family, all of them, they have to live with these questions every single day for the rest of their fucking lives. The thing that bothers me is you have these cases where it's clearly something is not adding up, but you're not spending the time to try and figure out what really happened. It's like, what's the easiest thing that we can prove whether it's true or not. And if something is not able to be proven once the tests and things are done, then we just pretend like that that part didn't happen. And we just still stick with our guns. It's, it's like rather than having something that's like just provable facts, like one way or the other, you have all these people's bias, or putting their own two cents or their own opinions or skewing things to fit some outcome that they've deemed is the facts is the truth. And they're just skewing things and changing things and pushing things to get to that point. And if it doesn't come out the way they want, they're like, oh, something's corrupt and it's whatever. Like, but your system is corrupt. Mm -hmm. The fact that you're not just looking at information from a black and white perspective, like you run a test, whatever the results are, this is what we go with. As opposed to you assume that he's guilty. So what do we have to tick off the box or pretend didn't happen to get to that ruling? That I have a big problem with. Right. They have like these tinted glasses on. Exactly. Justice is supposed to be blind. Mm -hmm. But here it's not blind. 
And that's the recurring pattern is that like, but how do you fix that if man is inherently flawed? Maybe flaw is not the right word, but you're, it's, it's impossible for somebody to just come to something without putting their own thoughts or experiences or feelings into a scenario. But how do you take those things out of an equation to make a justice system that is truly fair? Mm-hmm. That, that to me is the sort of recurring problem that in, in a lot of these stories, it's like, well, you know, Dwayne Deaver needed to get to a result. Susie Barker needed to get to a result. She's like, well, I'm just going to, till I get to where I want, as opposed to like, what actually happened here? Let's just run all of our tests. What's the truth? And how is it grounded in science or some sort of actual facts instead of conjecture or opinion? Well, and it it continues. It's like you go to, like a judge has a specific bias. Attorneys do. Juries. Juries. Everybody. That's who we are as people. We all have opinions. But how do you create a system that takes that out of the equation and makes it truly fair? Because some of these people that may have conflicting evidence did what they did, did what they're accused of. But there's plenty that didn't. How do you how do you solve that problem? Yeah, some people are guilty, but the evidence that was found means that maybe they wouldn't have had as harsh a punishment. Right. As Yeah. And that, that's that's important too. Like you can't ice cream anyone. <laughs> no, but that's important too because that's still not being fair to that person. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, in, in those instances, yes, you're a criminal. But you may not have done the caliber of crime that equates to the, the ruling or the, yeah, the, punishment. the punishment that you received mm-hmm. because not all the facts were presented. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. stuff matters. Like, I think sometimes people just want to see a guilty verdict and see somebody go away. And it like in terms of like the community or whoever, or like the um, prosecutors checking their boxes and politicians and whatever. They, they just want to see cases go away. Cause then it's like, we have a million more to do, you mm-hmm. know, it's like an overburdened system, like many things. But when you really boil it down to these individual, individual cases where we see that they're people, then you kind of go like, well, no, what the fuck? There's right. ways that we can still implement justice. I mean, I've experienced it myself. Like as a gay man, like there's definitely times where I've been places where, people have a preconceived notion of who I am or how I'm going to be and stuff like that, like really makes me angry because mm. it's you're, you're passing judgment before you even know anything about me. And it's the same thing in, in a lot of these trials is like people come to it and this is prosecutors and, you know, jurors. I mean, half of, half of jury selection is trying to find somebody that's going to connect with the defendant whether it's along racial lines or socioeconomic lines or, you know, or anything like that. Like you're not actually picking people that you think are going to be fair. You're like, Oh, who's going to understand that, you know, my client's gay or my client's Hispanic or African-American or anything like that. You're not picking based on someone who's going to make a fair ruling. You're like, who's going to be on my side as opposed to finding people or creating a system. That's how are we going to get to the root of the facts and what, what really happened as opposed to like, well, how do I win? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What it is. It, it feels very much like a game. Yeah. Like winner take all. Of course. And, and they have press conferences and like, I'm going to get out there first and spin my story. And yeah. it shouldn't be that. It should just be like, here's the information. 
let's figure out what actually happened. But I feel like part of the the point of us doing this and part of the point of this whole conversation is we're getting out there and we're talking about this fucking lab. And it's not the only lab in the United States. It's not the only crime lab that's affiliated with a government agency or right. law enforcement in the United States. And we're able to say, hey, guys, take, I think it's something like 38 states out of 50, which is a significant number, right. have affiliated yeah. crime labs. Well, that's the thing. It's like we're focusing on North Carolina, but North Carolina is not the only garbage state. <laughs> also, it's not a garbage of, state. There's yeah. plenty of other garbage states. <laughs> Garbage crime labs. Garbage crime labs. Yes. I've been in North Carolina. It is beautiful. Yes. Okay. So we're... When we interviewed Chris Muma, the executive director of the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence, at one point she told us the problem with the, the system is you expect the scales to be balanced. And she said, they're not balanced. Right. And it, it has stuck with me ever since she said that because... Well, yeah, that's thing that's like, innocent until proven guilty is a really cool catchphrase. Yeah. yeah. But that's not actually our system. Yeah. So on that super cheery note, I'm going to circle back to the audit. Basically, the report revealed that Dwayne Deaver was telling the truth about the way he had reported in Greg's case, where his notes reflected the negative and his report reflected the positive. And that was the practice at the lab. So meaning what we've been talking about where yeah. he was kind of keeping Practices it. to lie. Yeah. Got it. In 1997, it became written policy. Prior oh. to that, yeah, prior to that, it was unwritten, but it was like a known policy. It just was never on paper. Mm, we call it, that's the liar memo. <laughs> <laughs> so prior to that, it was unwritten policy and analysts just used their own discretion. Yeah. Which was going great. <laughs> <laughs> From 1986 to 2002, which was nearly the entire span of the scope of the audit, a guy named Mark Nelson was the forensic biology section chief at the SBI. And he acknowledged in the wake of the audit that omitting confirmatory tests was bad practice. Very astute observation. <laughs> right? Proud yeah, of him. Yeah. And apparently at section meetings, reporting positive results were was discussed and standardized. However, there was no discussion on reporting negative or inconclusive confirmatory tests. I don't know why. They just really like to be positive people. Positively full of crap. <laughs> yes. Allegedly. Allegedly. Well, I don't think that's fair. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> These are opinions. Yes. Yep. And Chris Swecker interviewed two analysts for the report who told him that they'd been warned about a potential for false positives, but they ignored those warnings, believing that a positive finding in the presumptive test indicated blood because, according to the News and Observer, the analysts had done testing on the plant-based materials known to cause a false positive reaction for blood, but hadn't gotten a positive reaction. Chris Swecker said, quote, they were writing reports to law enforcement. They were trying not to write any negative results. It also appeared, as Swecker wrote in the report, that, quote, there was anecdotal evidence that some analysts were not objective in their mindset. Mm, shucker. So cool. <laughs> okay, so we're just going to take a little bit of a look-see at the analysts, because eight of them were mentioned in the report, and we feel like they deserve a shout-out. Shouting at? 
shouting at <laughs> because the thing that really confounded me originally re- remember i came into the office and that we all worked in party party palace and i brought this idea to jess and the reason that i brought it to her is i realized that Dwayne deaver wasn't the only person like right that was doing this shit yeah it's bigger than just like one bad apple right so what what was really interesting to me is this guy was the one who was getting all of the heat, but it was so clear to me that he wasn't the only one. So only four of the analysts that were named were still working in the crime lab when the audit was released, and one was doing contract work for the agency. Time had passed, and a couple of analysts had retired, which rhymes with fired, like Brenda Bissett. I remember talked- her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Considering that Brenda Bissett was busy mislabeling Leslie Lincoln's DNA in and or around 2002-2003, we already reasonably assumed that she didn't necessarily retire in 2005 voluntarily. Right. Allegedly, she retired. Yes. (laughs) So we mentioned her in our episode featuring her handiwork. And... There was that guy that we talked about, Mike Budinsky. I'm not really sure how to say his last name, but he was her supervisor. And he said he was going to look into her previous 50 cases. I'm guessing he didn't. Well, we don't know if he did or didn't. And I've asked Leslie Lincoln's lawyer, Buddy, and I've asked former SBI lab employees and other folks, and no one fucking knows. What we do know is that as... The former FBI agents, Swecker and Wolf, look into the lab. They find, as we've mentioned, that Brenda Bissett misstated results of tests in her cases. In fact, it was Category 3, which covered the misleading final reports, where Swecker and Wolf found that Bissett had accounted for 24 of the 36 cases Shut they had up. found. Mm-hmm. Wow. So- yeah, that's a high She's an overachiever. Uh, yes. Superlative. Wow. All right. Go, Brenda. The other analysts cited in Category 3 were Deaver with five instances, and then an analyst named Lucy Milks. She had two cases. She left the SBI in 2006, but worked on contract as a chemist in the drug chemistry section because, of course. Because she's so good at lab testing. This is like a side thing, but it just reminded me of how, like, remember in The Keepers or like in Spotlight, how it was like if a priest got in trouble, they would move them. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like kind of similar where it's like if you are in like rocky waters, it seems as though in order to protect their people and maybe to protect like the the name of the, the SBI in this case. Well, it's like let's just transfer you somewhere. Yeah, and well, like, they did that with on. Robin Pendergraft, right? The FBI director, right? They did that in a case that we're not going to be covering this season, but it is a really terrible case, obviously, of a mentally challenged gentleman who had a six-page confession of like he had an IQ of something like eighty or something quite low. And he wrote the six-page confession that was very detailed and using language that it was very he wasn't unlikely. Capable of using. Yeah. Right. Well, the SBI agent in his case got moved over to the Medicaid fraud section, just like SBI Robin Pendergraft. Like they're always getting moved around. They're not getting fired. Which suspect? Yes. So then there was that guy Jed Tob that Jess was talking about. 
And he had two in this category out of the nine total cases cited in the entire report. Nine nine of his cases. Nine of his. He had nine cases total, but two was just in this section that Brenda Bissett was mentioned in and Lucy Milks was. Then there was Susie Barker, famed dancer slash jumper. With sick hair. I mean, that 90s hair was like... On point. On point. On point. Then there was a guy named Russell Hawley. He of actual scientific background. He actually had a background in science. And prior to the audit, I had brought up a lot of the issues that we're sort of bringing up to the lab. Oh, so they probably hated him. Hmm. Unknown. What we do know is that he did have one case mentioned in the audit in 2001. And I feel like... And this is my opinion, but if I feel like that goes more to the culture of the lab and their processes of reporting than it goes to his scientific background. But the fact is, he well, was one working instance could be you made a mistake. One in nine years, right. as opposed Which to everybody you're else. Human. That's yeah. happens. Yeah. As of 2011, he was still working with the SBI. Unclear where he is now. Then there was David Spittle, who we mentioned with Jennifer Jennifer Elwell. Mm-hmm. He left the SBI in 2001. He had two instances mentioned in the third category. He was responsible for almost 90 cases out of the 230 cases. Wait, what? Yeah. Oh, so he beat Brenda. And Dwayne Deaver. He's the winner right now. What's his name again? David Spittle. David Spittle. Oh, Spittle. He was Elwell's supervisor in the Derek Allen case. Okay, so in going through the entire... I went through the entire 230 cases. There's a sort of spreadsheet of these cases, and it lists the name, what test was done, what it's organized by which section they're in, like category one, category two, category three, mm-hmm. dates, if they were incarcerated, like that basic information. Okay, so all of these analysts were obviously totally fucked up. And right. like, why did Dwayne Deaver get all of the heat on this when somebody like David Spittle had 90 cases. Right. That's got to bum you out when you read that. I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm an idiot. Right? (laughs) Or it's like, oh, fuck, I've been found out. Or fuck, I got caught. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So as Swecker also mentioned in the report, it's possible that the cases on the list resulted in fuckery when it came to pleading guilty or an inability for a defense attorney to have a fighting chance. Right. Easy target. For sure. And this 100% came into play with Derek Allen. It also seemed to come into play with another man listed under Category 2, which covered the really confusing reports where it seemed like there was blood evidence found or identified, but like, (laughs) totally wasn't. That man's name was Daniel Green, and we'll get into his case and more fucked up shit from the lab and prosecutors and the audit next week in part two of The Audit is Fucked Up. Thank you so much for listening. At the end of each of these episodes, we want to highlight the work being done for justice reform, science, and the prevention of wrongful convictions and provide information on where, if you're as fucking pissed off at hearing about these stories as we are in telling them, you can throw some money or volunteer or whatever you can do. For some of our research in this episode, we spoke with Marilyn T. Miller, an associate professor of forensic science at the Virginia Commonwealth University. 
If you have money to spare, send it to me. If you're not going to send it to me, I'd really send love it. Send it to me. <laughs> I, like, I like money. <laughs> okay. For real, though, if you have any money to spare, she would love for you to help support the Virginia Commonwealth University, which is where she works, and specifically the College of Humanities and Science. You can find them at www.support. Dot VCU, that's V as in Victor, C as in Charlie, U as an umbrella, dot EDU as an education. You don't have to explain that one. <laughs> <laughs> and as always, we'd love for you to join us on our social media, where we'll be posting links to our research, photos, and videos on our Facebook page. You can find us on all platforms Facebook, Insta, and Twitter at FDUP Podcast, that's E F F E D U P. P-O-D-C-A-S-T. If you need to reach us via email, it's the same deal. Fduppodcast at gmail.com. And finally, we don't like to shill for ourselves, but this podcast isn't about us. Fucked Up or Effed Up is about helping other people. But in order to do that, we need to get the word out. So if you have a moment to spare, please rate us on whatever app you use to listen to us. It will help us become more visible and help us elevate the voices of the victims and survivors who have been impacted. If you have more than a moment and want to help us get the word out, please tell people, share links. The more people know about these injustices, the more changes that can be made. Let's create a fucking social injustice league and change the fucked up world. Effed up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Done. That was fucked up. Effed Up is executive produced by myself, Priya Hubbard, and Jessica Borges. Research and story is by me, Priya Hubbard. Executive Inquisitor is Keith Burke. Episode recaps written by Brandy Abbott. Social media hall monitors, Brandy Abbott and Paloma Diaz. Cover art is by Allie Kelly. You can find her work at Allie Kelly Illustrations on Instagram. That's A-L-L-I-E-K-E-L-L-E-Y Illustrations on Instagram. Our music is composed by Allegra Borges. Executive in charge of support, Jeff Berg. Technical consultant, Randy Maringer of Maringer and Unger. On-air distractions provided by Nima and Newman, a.k.a. Newman. Additional investigations are provided by Cat Detectives Monsieur Hercule Poirot and Captain Hastings. Special thanks to Chris Muma and Chris Swecker. Taub said people... Wait, 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 wait. We, we are going to need to back up. Oh, you want all that? Yep. Because I nearly spit out my coffee. <laughs> when I was, so Jess made a little, some tweaks to the script as she was going through it. And she said... Like, why does this guy get to decide what to include as being science or not science? This makes me want to stress eat a jar of Nutella. <laughs> <laughs> which which cupboard is it in? Uh, last one on the left. I can go get it for you. It's mostly gone. <laughs> but don't worry, Wait, the, it's a two-pack, so there's a full one in the last cabinet on the right. <laughs> Just we keep them separate. went to uh, Costco. <laughs> There are seriously, there are nights when Jess and I have been on that sofa and we will share (laughs) Nutella and rose. (laughs) Talk about crime. Yeah. True crime. Sounds like a good Friday night.
Mhm. Mhm.